Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The closer you get to them and you really start to get into their heads, the more you realize you haven't pinned them down. You can't put them in a box. You don't really understand them. You get this sense of strangeness and otherness and things that don't add up in terms of the filter of our 21st century Western mind. Hello and welcome to the pod and today I've got Theodore Brunn joining me to chat Vikings. Theo is the author of A Savage Moon, part of his Wanderer Chronicles, and we'll be discussing the Vikings, their travels, and the relationship with the Byzantine Empire in about the early 8th century AD. Now, dear listeners, we were talking just as the sycamore tree on Hadrian's Wall had been felled, which, for those not aware, was a stunningly picturesque shop, which featured most famously in Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. I've put a link in the show notes for those interested in the story, as well as all the other links that we talk about. Before we get to the chat, I wanted to plug an interesting conversation I had on a UK news channel discussing the Battle of Agincourt, St Crispin's Day, Henry V, and current UK politicians. So I've put a link in on YouTube. You might find it amusing. Coming up, I've got plenty of great history, Winston Churchill, female spies, and kings and queens of England. So please do share, rate, and review. But until then, I'll hand you over to me and Theodore Brunn talking the Vikings. Theodore Brun, welcome to the podcast. Great pleasure to have you on, Theo. Thank you for joining. It's a pleasure to be here, Ollie. Thank you for having me on. And I thought you'd be a really interesting guest to have on, Theo, because you have a, a an interesting backstory as to how you've now arrived in your current iteration, which is historical novelist. But before that, and I think I've got something vaguely in common with you, is we both studied archaeology, but then you went and became a lawyer, I believe, and That's and then right. yeah and had a career and ended up in hong kong and then you decided to cycle from hong kong back to england and become a writer that just summed up your entire working career yes <laughs> yes it's this it's very much a game of two halves i think you could say um with a slightly i mean now i now i look back 12 years i think this bizarre bridge between uh being a lawyer and being a writer was spanned by this I mean, frankly, it was a, a great fun and slightly incredible journey of getting on a bicycle in Hong Kong and cycling back to England. And yeah, I mean, there were a lot of reasons why I felt the need to go on a bike ride like that at that point. But I it, I tried to leave the law, I think, three times. That was the third time of asking. It's quite tricky to to leave. I don't know if others, others have found that. 
like um, trying to leave the mafia isn't it it is a bit because they they skill you up you see and then you realize that you can't do anything else at all although there were and i never really had any there was never any flicker of a sign that i was going to be writing fiction for the second half of my life let's call it like that just total flatline when it came to to creativity although I was in contentious law, so I was doing international arbitration law, and, and part of that involved writing witness statements. I was still quite junior at the time, and I used to get these first drafts sent back to me. They're, they're, they're the storytelling part of a case, let's say, and I used to get these things sent back to me and go, this is far too colourful, and like, stop making it so dramatic. You need to, Every sentence needs to be backed up by fact, and... Uh, so there was some semblance that maybe I, or some s- small signs that I was I was destined to be a storyteller. But uh, yeah, it took some escape the law, I can tell you that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you literally had to cycle cycle away. I, I just wanted was interested in the journey. I, I assume you did you cross sort of Mongolia, Ch- Russia? or Is that the way to go? It was mostly what, China, actually. You- it was mostly China. I mean, literally, literally mostly in the sense that it was a journey of 17,096 kilometers or 10,685 miles. Of those 17,000 kilometers, 7,000 is China. So to give you some sense of the scale, of it's like a continent. I mean, it's bigger than a continent in a sense. So after that, I had... Part of my legal career, I spent a little bit of time in Moscow. So I had the kind of beginnings of some Russian. So I was determined to chart my chart my route through the ex-Soviet countries. So Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, ended up crossing the Caspian Sea into um, Azerbaijan, Georgia. Couldn't go the so You missed Iran then? You, you went north of Iran? missed Iran. Yeah, I went north through... I mean, there's a sort of wasteland of Western Kazakhstan, uh, which is quite a challenging bit in the height of summer. I think it was like 45 degrees going through there and then couldn't go through Abkhazia because it was not long after Mr. Putin had been up to his tricks. Um, So bits of Georgia were out. Um, So I ended up getting a hydrofoil from Trabzon in Turkey across to Sochi and then continuing on into what was Ukraine in Crimea, which is a fantastically wonderful place. It really is was one of the high points of the trip, actually. And um, just in terms of landscape and and obviously people are friendly as well. And then continued on uh, Ukraine, Slovakia, I think it was, and then sort of Austrian into the west of rest of West Western Europe. Um, and it took about a year. And yeah, it was very much. On my downers when I started out, you know, there's there's a reason if you're 33 and you go, well, you know, screw this for a game of soldiers. I'm chucking my toys out the pram. I'm getting on a bike and I'm going to ride home. But it was in a sense, it was a bit deeper than that because it was, you know, I just needed a very basic purpose at that stage in my life. I felt the job I was in in, in Hong Kong was I just couldn't really make sense of what I, why I was there, what I was doing there. It just didn't have any purpose or meaning to me. Um, but I had this idea for this series of novels, not being a novelist at the time or, or even any kind of storyteller at the time. But I thought all these pieces are coming together in my head that are forming some kind of story. I, I almost felt like I owed it to honor to, to that, to, to kind of honor, honor it by trying to tell this story. In the meantime, this bicycle ride sort of got in the way. And then and then when I got home, 
was was just on a different plane as it were in terms of like felt much more energized like had had written quite a lot about the journey and got feedback from people so that was positive so it gave me some confidence like yes i can actually write and people want to hear what i have to say or the way in which i say it and were so, you constructing the yeah. story whilst you were cycling did the plot come together well because you got how many uh, it took you a year you got a lot of time. Yeah, to not as not as much as you'd think. I have to say, there were definitely some key scenes in the first two books came to me there, and then when I got home, I thought, you know, writing a they are quite lengthy novels. They're good sort of epic l- length historical fiction. Um, it seemed like a very great deal to bite off and try and chew, and so the I thought for me the easier book to write would be the kind of travelogue story about this bike journey so i started trying to do that or doing that and then reaching out to agents and and seeing if there was any interest and there there was essentially like look if you'd maybe lost an arm in kyrgyzstan or else you were bare grills then someone might be interested in this but but i'm you know or you write the book and it's the best thing since i can't think of a travel writer off the top of my head fitzroy mclean or something like that but when i started voicing these ideas an idea for this i mean you'll we'll talk about it the kind of dark age if you could call it that early medieval period historical fiction people started going you know nodding along and going yeah that sounds good that sounds original and and commercial in its way so i was getting a lot more um vibe for green lights in that direction so that that's at that point i sat down and started writing and writing and writing and writing and eventually (laughs) i came up with with a manuscript which was about a thousand pages long literally and you know it took a lot of rewriting to get it down to something that was eventually publishable and then i was sort of in the game as it were yeah fantastic well that's why we're speaking so you're about i think next week your latest the fourth in your series uh, a savage moon is coming out so just for listeners sake i think the first is a mighty dawn then it's a sacred storm is number two a burning sea um that came out i think a couple of years ago burning sea didn't it yeah and then now a savage moon to to complete the quadrilogy so are we going any further i think we are we've got one more book to write it right. was always I always envisioned it as, as five actually. Whether I get to write it, I don't know. Well, I, I I will have to at some point, but I'm not exactly sure how things progress from this this point on with with uh, publishing contracts and all the rest of it. But yeah, the story is not over. Great. Well, I, I know of at least two listeners who are fans of yours, so it's going to be great. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, at least two. At That's least brilliant. two. Yeah, that's my back marker. Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, you'll you'll you've you've got at least two sales, hopefully. Right. Um. So for the sake of uh, the dear listeners, uh, talk about the history behind. But we should really introduce your hero of the story, and yeah. and I should also just talk about what period it is because I had a novelist on a couple of weeks ago talking about the Dark Ages, and I know this is the Dark Ages, and. This was the early Dark Ages. I know when, and we're, I, there was a, I, I got told off for even calling them the Dark Ages. Yeah, I, 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 for me, it's a bit of a concession to even use that term because it's not, you know, people don't like it, it, doesn't really hold water as a term, I would say. But fair enough, you right? Know, when, you, when you start thing. saying it, saying it to, to in a commercial sense, like 
people get it and they go oh, okay it's it's early on in the medieval period or somewhere somewhere between romans and 1066 that sort of vibe yeah yeah exactly yeah that was very much well i feel like i know a little bit more now so i should be saying early medieval so i'll just have to train myself there so forgive me for that but so we got your hero and it's we're talking 8th century aren't yes early 8th century and in fact the the peg that defined all of that was when i first started getting the ideas if 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 you can call it that like sort of downloads as it were it was in the the figure that um introduced me to the whole thing was this guy who actually does feature in this fourth book of savage moon he's a an english missionary called who ended up being saint boniface so he ended up being the apostle to the germans was how he's known i think he's patron saint of germany in fact but he he was a, a kind of vehicle into this period and then i read a little bit around his life and then started seeing the 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 real the real event that i thought oh maybe there's a story here was this invasion of or invasion slash raid um of the moors or the the muslim armies and muslim expansion into the iberian peninsula and then this raid that takes place in 732 ad to within 100 kilometers of paris at the battle of tours and we're talking about the franks on the christian side if you call it that or the european side were led by charles martel and in some versions of history it's a little bit that it's a point of point of argument between historians like whether this was really a decisive moment where the onrush of islam was sort of stopped the high water mark and then pushed back and therefore charles martel becomes this kind of quote savior of europe at least that was how the character his dynasty the history that was immediately told of him was was sort of characterized him like that i was trying to climax some kind of story towards that event just on that on that theo sorry for interrupting the battle of tour i think is also known as the in france do they call it the battle of poitiers as well yeah they do Right, not to be confused by that. We had Gordon Corrigan on recently talking about the later Battle of Poitiers. Oh, what, the much later one? Yeah, so the French get yes. very upset. So hopefully I can regain some French followers now. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 known as both. I call it the Battle of Tours, I suppose, because that's probably the first name I, I came to it under. Um, but yes, it's somewhere in that, that part of France anyway, sort of mid to north central area. And not a lot is known about that battle, but I, to be honest, I, I am nowhere near that in terms of my own timeline. So I, right. so I, in terms of structuring the, the whole series, as it were, there were these things going on. There was a lot going on. The sort of Christian Franks, the paganism of north, more northern Saxon Europe, the Scandies, um, and then this kind of on onrush of of Islam as well. So. The figure that comes came to my mind, the protagonist, is this fictional warrior of the North who, and the first book is really his kind of coming of age story. So, so there was always this idea of this protagonist, he ends up being a sort of physically broken man, like he's got a, a, a limp, a permanent injury to his, he's impaired, as it were, as, as a her- heroic figure. But the plan was always that he was going to rove pretty far and wide and get caught up in these events. Um, and through him, we were going to see some of this action, as it were, historical action. Great stuff. Great stuff. 
And so we should mention really then the context of Scandinavia at the time, because there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of migration going on really, isn't there? I would describe it as the dawn before the Viking age, having read books of the go-to scholar in this area is Neil Price, um, whom, who, if you haven't had in this pro- podcast, you definitely should get him because he's a, he's a a great talker on this area. But he wrote a piece he, for us. The ch- is it the Children of Ashenelm? His yes, recent history is fantastic. Yes, it? exactly. That's that's fantastic about the and he's very much how to get into the Viking mentality, and in fact. He, he would probably say that, that, you know, the hard and fast definitions of when the Viking Age began are essentially um, constructions. They're not. There were trends going on in which there was social disruption and such, and the, in that raiding probably began between around the Baltic, between different little polities and kingdoms and what have you uh, around that area before they then start spilling out to the West. And then, it, you know, from English term or British terms, as it were, we, we enter the kind of classic Viking age at the end of the eighth century. So in terms of material culture and belief systems and all of that, I think it's pretty similar. You know, the early Viking age would be exactly the same kind of culture as that which I was focusing on. And also my degree was in archaeology and I'd done Scandinavian archaeology as a feature of a couple of papers on that. So had all that kind of latent familiarity with the material culture. I think Neil's stuff is fantastic and, and in a sense innovative in that he's really trying to understand the worldview and that Vikings as a concept are seem like they're very familiar to us. Like everyone from my, probably some of your earliest memories are are like, yes, I know what a Viking is. As soon as we start talking about history, someone tells you about a Viking. But his point is that the closer you get to them and you really start to get into their heads, the more you realize you haven't pinned them down. You can't put them in a box. You don't really understand them. You get this sense of strangeness and otherness and and things that don't add up in terms of the filter of our 21st century Western mind. And and that's quite interesting as a novelist because you really want to lean into that strangeness and that ambivalence and um that otherness i think it makes for good uh you know good characters just exploring that then because i guess religion being you know well a, a guiding light at the time as opposed to the the life we all lead today presumably because the vikings you know they haven't uh, turned to christianity it, how how much of a challenge do you find it? I know you have Viking blood yourself, but I'm not suggesting you're you're praying to to Odin every night. But um, how do you get into the mindset of a of someone who is, as you say, they're quite alien? It is a belief system that isn't that you one wouldn't recognise today. I think it's it's to do with the supernatural and to do with the boundaries. Just the word supernatural implies. There's the natural and then there's the supernatural and there's a boundary between them. And what's clear, I think, from the the Viking mindset is that these boundaries that we define quite in quite hard terms are very fluid. So the idea of nature and man, like a lot of the stories from that period refer to shape-shifting characters, you know, between animals and humans. And I'm not suggesting that 
you know, we we should believe that, but they believe that. And so you've got to kind of get in the mindset of loosening up the idea of what's possible and what's not. And so you d- there is this interesting st- sort of stools between history and fantasy and how do you define a novel that's trying to explore this, this area and take their own belief system quite seriously and not just bring to it, overlay it, our 21st century skepticism to like none of this could really happen or you know witchcraft is just not something that we we want to take seriously now in a sense it's fun because you can everything is to play for it doesn't help in terms of categorizing your book on a on a in a bookseller's eyes because they were like if there's anything to do with any sort of weird supernatural stuff we put it in fantasy because otherwise we'll get blowback from materialist historians who don't want to read anything to do with any of that stuff. So, I mean, I just told the story that as I, as I kind of came to it and wasn't really thinking about those sort of problems in the writing of it. But I do think, yeah, if you take seriously the idea of the supernatural, the spiritual, and also that crossover between religion and warfare and sort of ethics if you like when I, when I talk about ethics I mean like the warrior ethic like to be brave in the face of death is obviously a high virtue as far as they were concerned you know just to kill someone is not necessarily a particularly dust you know the the worst thing in the world that you could do in the sense that it is in our world so so there are values there there is there are morals there and taboos and what have you it's just that they don't align with ours so the more you i guess familiarize yourself with that world through the stories you know there are quite a lot of sagas that you can read and you start to almost anticipate you get in you get in the frame of mind of those kind of stories i i think is the best way of putting it and so hopefully can try and replicate that in in the ones that i'm telling and in your novels there's a there's there is that blend with early Christianity as your hero travels east away from his homeland. So I wondered how, you know, because that's early, as I say, early Christianity. So that even that is quite difficult to get to, you know, contemporary readers' heads around as well. No, I think, I mean, we live in a post-Christian age, essentially, don't we? Even though if you, I mean, I should put my hand up. I am actually a Christian. Okay, I came to faith in later in life so i was 27 and in part through history so i get it i get why i can sort of see why as a culture we have turned away from it and and trace some of that but i also can see the other side of like the plausibility and the the some of the reason behind it and and you know it's very easy to make sweeping characterizations about religion particularly if it's not something that you want to have anything to do with and so the early the fault line the the friction between those two things is something i hope i try and bring both sides of that equation having lived both sides of that equation and then just try and tell a good story so i'm trying to bring the full force of what i the maybe the reality of what it is to be a pagan where you never heard of this stuff ever and and the plausibility of like or the the genuineness of faith of someone who's but you know motivated and feels like he's kind of got a god-given purpose to go out there into the wilds of these kind of wild and unknown places and try and um represent the word of god or however you would characterize it and you know perhaps having 
the the sense of reality that I feel on both sides of those things hopefully makes it a, a genuine conflict, like an interesting and and bring some reality to that conflict. But certainly, you know, Christianity further south had been around for centuries by then. So part of the movement of my characters from the first book, they and well, the first and second book are set in, in Scandinavia. The third book, they end up um, traveling down the, the great rivers of Eastern Europe or Central Europe and end up in Constantinople where Christian, it's all Christianity. So then you get this notion of what do they make of that? <laughs> and it just, you know, it's a, it's an interesting thing to explore, at least I find it so. I find it very interesting, actually. Particularly, were you able to find the kind of sources that would, in research, as to what the reaction is in Christian Constantinople and how they viewed these? I think they were, I mean, there's one famous one, which is probably a couple of century, I think it's ninth century rather than um, uh, my, you know, t- 150 years later, let's call it that. And it's a, a Viking queen. I think she's called Olga. And she comes to Constantinople, walks in the Hagia Sophia, Sophia the Hagia Sophia, and just instantly converts because she just thinks, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And it is pretty mind-blowing to walk into... I, I went for the third book. I did a research trip to Istanbul. Again, trying to wear the head, if you like, of my character's and see a city I'd never really, I hadn't been to before. I couldn't remember at all. I was about 18 and I just didn't pay any attention whatsoever. So as 18 year olds, I want to do. So I went there on my own for this research trip and it was having already written scenes about um, someone walking into, say, for example, the Hagia Sophia and, and doing it for the first time myself. And it's like, wow. Yeah. I mean, they just don't make buildings like that anymore. And the whole architecture of an administration of empire must have been pretty overwhelming. And the structure and the hierarchy of religion is so evident in the Byzantine culture. It's like you cannot separate the two. You almost cannot separate theology from politics in for, for large for centuries of Byzantine history. And so for a Viking or a Norseman to come down and, you know, you, the religion in the Norse, it, it, yeah, if you're going into battle, you'd, you'd carve a few runes and you would take seriously the idea that Odin was um, looking down on, could be looking down on you and paying attention to you. And if you died, you were going to face death bravely and with luck, you'd be carried off, chosen to carry off to a slightly more fun life in uh, Odin's big hall of Valhalla. Or it was like, we don't, the elves have been, you know, at the, cow's udder again and like the cow the milk's gone sour we better put out some bread for the elves and then they'll be nice to us you know it's sort of it was more quotidien if i can say that more like everyday and mundane i mean i know there's not some grandiose architecture that that obviously christianity came to occupy in in particularly in the roman empire at that period so i mean who knows i guess i guess a lot of novels examine that very fault line and and come up with probably quite rightly the sense of particularly where the Christians were were making inroads into the pagan territory as opposed to the other way around. It's like, this is our way of life. Who are you to tell us anything different? But clearly some of them were convinced because 
they all became Christian countries, didn't they? So in in one sense, and yet there was there was always that folklore of the Norse and Scandinavia that I think still had a powerful hold over the cultural mindset of people from those countries. So that and that's probably still evident today. So interesting how these two things have interacted over over time, but also over geography as well. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say there is there is still a clear difference today one kind of detects yes yeah it feels and we talk about um i met i was talking to a friend the other day who was an artist and we were talking about we were doing some sort of art it was for it was for a, a little interview or something and i was and i drew in this on art she painted a picture and then we swapped positions and i started painting on her picture even though i can't paint at all i started painting this red line, this sort of scarlet thread of the fate of men, as it were, which is defined by the Norns. So these are these three slightly shadowy female figures in the Norse cosmology, these these women who are the spinners of fate. And 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 she said, what's that? And I said, oh, it sort of represents the, the thread of a man's fate or a woman's fate. And she's like, that's so interesting because I've got a Swedish friend who always talks about are you able to see the red red thread or the red line in something? And she's meaning like, can you see the meaning of what just happened in your life? You know, can you can you tease out what's really going on in your life sort of thing? So I thought it, th- there's still echoes of that, as of course there probably would be into, into today. Yeah, interesting. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So you mentioned Constantinople and and of course there are the um, the walls that still stand today that... that yeah resisted because we've talked about the vikings the uh, the viking religion that you know and then obviously christianity but then a third religion appears in the form of a siege and 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 that that features quite prominently in a burning sea i think yeah that's right and in fact that was another of the great moments of that trip that research trip to istanbul was walking the walls of theodosius and they were constructed in the fourth century and they really are even now. I mean, I I saw the pic, but I saw the picture that you had sent for an article you'd written for us, and the walls. They look like they had been built. I don't know, 150 years ago. I know it's amazing, isn't it? The what's the word? The preservation of these walls, and even now you can walk on quite long sections of them and see the triple rampart effect. There's a ditch and then a built-up platform with a wall at the top of it, and then back a bit, and then there's massive stone walls that are. 20, 30 feet thick. And that was, you know, fantastic standing on top of that and seeing some of the 
topography of the landscape and how there was arguably there was a weak point where the this river the Lycus River comes under the the uh the walls and so that became very much a central part of the central the middle section the sort of siege besieging section bit of a burning sea um but they're incredible and they they stood for a thousand years really i mean they 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 people got in i think in the 13th century 1204 the crusaders got in but i think that was by subterfuge so and some sort of betrayal rather than breaching the walls and then eventually they literally had to invent gunpowder and <laughs> create cannon in order to finally take um istanbul whenever it was 1453 i think it was or constantinople as it was then but even that was was a bit of a um what's the word coin toss situation because um i think it was a hungarian inventor of gunpowder was trying to flog his gun to uh the byzantine empire at the time i forget which Chris, can you probably remember the name? I can't remember the name of the last emperor. I, I will edit but, it so that we both sound like we remember the name. Constantine the Eleventh. Right there, you go. Um, and but he couldn't afford the gun. He couldn't afford the gun, so this guy just went off to Mehmet the Second and sold it to him instead. And so, sure enough, the the Constantinople finally fell and the walls finally came down. Um, but they are an incredibly impressive historical feature. I mean that. Istanbul just as a whole is one of these probably two, three cities in the world that everyone must go and visit if they have the slightest inkling of interest in history. Right. I'm, my face is reddening because I haven't been. Well, you've got a treat in store for you, I would say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so this great siege, which I think is 718 AD. 717 to 718. And not a lot you know, I explained how the first hook was this battle of Tor at the, um, earlier on. The second historical hook was discovering this big siege. And I was like, oh, how can I get my characters to be involved in that? Hopefully there's not too much shoehorning of plot and it makes some sense. But anyway, they ended up down there. Um, because I just saw this as another decisive moment. And in a way, it's the same thing going on, but in a different part of Europe. And this siege represented the the... Well, Constantinople represented the bulwark of, of Europe had uh, it fallen to the advancing Arab armies, then, you know, the rest of Europe was relatively uh, open, I would say, to their continual advancement. But because they couldn't knock out Constantinople, and this was the second Arab siege in like 40 years, and the first one lasted five years, I think it was, um, they you know, they went that far, but no further. And although it wasn't the end of the war when the, the Byzantines managed to, or they were called the Romans, they still called themselves the Romans until right up to the end, they managed to withstand this huge, huge combined force of air and, not air, <laughs> no, land and sea. Maybe they had some air, air, air stuff, who knows, didn't make it into the historical record. So, you know, the odds should have been in favour of the final capitulation of Greek fire, a lot of Greek fire around then, isn't there? Generally? Yeah, the Greek fire came into play, particularly in the first siege, actually, the, the one 40 years earlier, when Muawiya, Muawiya was the caliph at the time. 
And he was determined this was going to happen. And he came up to face to face with Greek fire for the first time. I think it had only just been invented by this Jewish Syrian, if memory serves, called Kalinikos, I think his name was. And um, so it was essentially napalm. And But I think the genius of it was the siphon out of which they which they they devised out of which to fire this stuff um so it was an incredibly powerful jet of burning hot oil or more like sticky sort of sticky plasmary type feel to it gelatinous the stuff that once it got on you or got on your ship it wasn't it was just going to stick to you and burn so it was terrifying to face um and quite deadly and invincible as it were as a weapon of defense and so that you know they came back year after year for that first siege and then the second siege there were definitely some incidents where it was used when the arab fleet first arrived about a month i think after the army had sort of encircled the walls on the western side of constantinople the, the fleet arrived and sailed pretty much un unchallenged up the bosphorus but there was a, a suddenly a dead calm when the last the rear guards of the the whole navy got more or less level with we'd call it the golden horn now and they were becalmed and then so so Leo the Assyrian this this emperor sends out his little fire runner dromons which is the name of the ships which are quite small things with maybe twenty oars each and these tiny little it was like these little I suppose hunting dogs taking down a bison or whatever and just they were very maneuverable and these um arab ships couldn't couldn't go anywhere so they were suddenly realized that oh dear <laughs> this feels like history repeating itself and i think that weapon obviously came into came to good use for as far as the the byzantines were concerned quite a few times through the next few centuries so uh, an inter- and it's it's a great weapon to have in a historical fiction book because it's very dramatic it's right on the yeah, front exactly cover. And, and, Hence the name of Burning Sea. <laughs> mm. Yeah, there's, um, it, the cover is is wonderful. It really is. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, there's some there there are um, what do you call them? Reconstructionists, historians who've who've managed to recreate the siphon that produced the stuff. And actually, they they had these mini hand grenades as well. They were like little sort of clay pots filled with the same stuff, with presumably a small fuse would lob these things into um, enemy boats and they, the pottery would shatter and all, the stuff would explode. So quite advanced technology in in terms of what the Romans had at their disposal. So if we skip forward a bit to your current knowledge, a savage moon. So where are we? So the Muslim attack has been repulsed and that's the a burning sea. Yeah, the kind of arc of the story starts in Constantinople in the aftermath of that. Um, and um, there's a little bit of subterfuge um, in terms of the the fictional characters and how they, what they need. They're, they're, there's there's a female protagonist as well. And sort of between her and my male protagonist, so it's, he's called Erland, she's called Lilla. They've got a plan whereby they're going to return to effectively Sweden, where she was queen, but she was usurped. So she's determined to uh, have her revenge, wreak her revenge on the man who usurped her kingdom or however you, her, her 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 realm. But in order to do that, they need 
to find their men again. They find their crew, find their ship, and have get some gold. So it's all about the first part of the book is all about a heist feel to it of stealing this gold that's going to f- um, fund their armies back once they get back to the north. So there's a third point of view character who's a eunuch who was a baddie in the in the burning sea he was the sort of arch baddie if you like of that or the main antagonist of that story but he becomes something of an anti-hero in this and he's one of those characters that just kind of refused to walk off the page and take his exit and bow out it's like no no he keeps coming back in my imagination it's like no he's got more story to tell and i he he did actually he was very good i i enjoyed writing the 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 thread it's like a three strand thread if you like um of these three points of view characters. So he ends up in Rome and then traveling these old pilgrim routes for various reasons. He's basically trying to trying to get away because he's if he's he's a wanted man in the empire and gets in his own scrape. So so we see quite a lot of Rome and then he travels north over the Alps and into the Rhinelands. And then meanwhile, Erlan and Lilla, they end up sailing back but they get stranded a storm anyway i won't give away the plot but they get sort of di- their plans go awry they end up in francia or francia the land of the franks which is where we are in the merovingian where the merovingian kings were still in power but at a moment where this character charles martel was at the very beginning of his career he was a young man of maybe 23 24 and um as you'll see from the the book, came within a whisker of uh, it all coming to an end before it had really got started as far as his career was concerned, because there was a lot of infighting and civil war that that Erlan and Lilla and their band of crewmates walk into this kind of disaster zone. So historically, we're talking about the civil war within the between the Franks to do with the tail end, the waning, if you like, of the Merovingian dynasty and the rise of Charles Martel, who was the first of well, he wasn't the first Carolingian king, but he was the sort of granddaddy of the Carolingian dynasty. You mentioned your bad guy. Is there a temptation since his appearance in a burning sea to to kill him off? Because often you want the bad guy to die. But then if you kill off a great character you've created, you, well, you, you know, you can't use him again. And it's great to have a, a, a long running bad guy, I think, in, in novel. In, in Yeah, I think he's very much. Uh, I, I, there, There is a um, what's the word? A big reveal as far as his character is concerned, which will come in the fifth book. But in the meantime, he's a great sort of joker in the pack. He's what I would call a shapeshifter character in it in a story structural sense or a sort of archetypal sense in that he does sometimes he's he's trying to be he's not trying to be good but sometimes in spite of himself he's he he's all right and other times he's just really really wicked um but he just stays alive in my mind i didn't kill him off i think because of the reveal like there's something about him that that is is significant and so he's he had to stay alive but i have actually made that mistake well, is it a mistake or not of killing off your best characters? In my first two books, there was a sidekick called Kai, um, who was a kind of 14-year-old, something like that, 14, 15, 16-year-old. And he was just such a fun character to write. And he did have a very dramatic, very moving exit. But 
the third book was definitely hard harder to write for the lack of him and also in the second book this the queen figure she's a sort of femme fatale off the charts medieval i don't know like she was just again a very easy character to write because she was just so alive in my head and um she came to a, a, a sticky end at the end of book two so i've there are more there are more down the line if book five comes around don't worry and and by the way there's also a pretty horrific character in book four who i haven't really mentioned who i i suppose i could in the sense that he is more representative of that old world of the old pagan world but he's that off the chart as well he's um extreme even for even for the the pagan it, vikings then well i've taken him to an extreme i would say i would say pretty probably 90, 95% of i mean i don't want any any people who modern day uh, asar true or asar true worshippers are going to come after me cuz i've characterized this guy is pretty bad but basically there's a there's a um you know that the whole myth of that vikings have horns uh, or on the helmets vikings helmets have horns yeah yeah i've got so a comes... i've got a plastic one upstairs that i was given on the stag do i know i've got a little a little um troll wearing a horned helmet in a sitting in a viking ship waving a danish flag on my desk so that <laughs> reminds me of my roots um but anyway this there's, there's there's some archaeological finds called the Torslunda plates uh which i'm not even sure what they're for they're sort of like die cast um small metal plates but and they've got different images stamped into them and one of them is this very famous uh two figures there one of them is like a sh- shamanic figure a shaman figure with two massive horns and i think this was where the idea of like people from this culture wore horned helmets um and uh and he only has one eye and he's carrying a stick that is symbolic really or totemic if you like of of what shamans would would use and both male and female um and then next to him is a a warrior carrying a spear with a wolf coat or wolf skin with complete head mask on and so I was sort of familiar with that with from my my studying days and I just it was too tempting to just take those two figures and turn them into something quite nightmarish uh in this deep dark forest so so to to bring this full circle to where the whole inspiration for this whole series came from was this as I said St Boniface and but there's a story it was specifically from a story about St Boniface where he goes as his, this Christian missionary roving off into the wilds of of these germanic lands that he ends up chopping down the sacred oak of thor in order to demonstrate the powerlessness if you like of that god to make a point and i even as i was listening to this lecture talk tell that story i was like surely they wouldn't just let him cut down their favorite tree would they and and already i was seeing in my head this slightly kind of black sabbathy scene with fiery torches and shadowy figures and all that so um really this sort of this becomes realized in terms of the seeds that were in my imagination we give full vent to those in the the last the latter part of this book and and this character this shaman character um occupies a very prominent role as the the kind of arch baddie that that has to be overcome
I can't believe you you you've just mentioned the the felling of a tree and we've just we're talking like a couple of I think it was it yesterday they find this hugely incredible sycamore tree being chopped down do you know about this outside yes I did yeah that's a very good point isn't it gosh mm. there's something deeply symbolic about that in a lot of senses isn't there um yeah I mean that's horrifying and I suppose that horror if I you know even though I would call you know I am a Christian but that horror of like this guy whoever it doesn't matter who he is <laughs> what he's got what he's got to say he's just come and chopped down our tree I mean, it's it's it almost doesn't matter what the motivation is because it's, no. now it's happened. I mean, I know it. There are a lot of trees in the world, but this is it. It just gets to the heart. It's it's interesting. It does go beyond religion, obviously, because it's interesting well, it's heritage, to think about why it? it affects so many people. Though, I think there is some. I felt it was um, very huge disrespect sort of... to nature, of course. Isn't it? Oh, massive disrespect it's an to nature, it's an to history, nature. to yeah. heritage, yeah. to other people, you know, the enjoyment of other people, the landscape, everything really. Like it's very, it beggars belief in some senses, mm. but I think, you know, maybe we're in an age where things are getting kicked over pretty hard. And, and I don't know, if you don't like it, maybe we should stand up and say stop. But yeah, uh, it's, it's, we need that we need that discernment don't we of like what is good and what is not good from the legacy that we have from history you know here we are talking about history it's like a lot has come down to us some of it's good some of it's not good at all i think we need to sort of dial up the discernment a little bit more and anyway it's not for me to pontificate about that but yeah it is a tragedy absolute tragedy i don't know if there are some genius tree doctors i have no idea someone was saying can't wait till it gets stuck back up again i was like surely they can't yeah do no i don't think that's happening um but no. but i don't i don't know about tree transplants can you can i don't know what maturity a tree needs to be to to be repositioned because, i have no idea but yeah. i'm guessing that that's a that's a goner yeah i mean it's, it's yeah awful. yeah yeah right well well theo this has been really really great to speak really interesting i've really enjoyed um this chat and i should also mention you're a co-host of a, a podcast so any listeners who are historical fiction writers thinking of writing historical fiction they should check this out it's the history quill is, is what exactly do you do you cover on that theo we cover we we interview other historical fiction authors of different genres sometimes um different experiences of a lot of it's about the writing process and you know their journey into how they became uh, authors, which our listeners are always interested to to hear. But just sort of generally, yeah, how they go about their their writing. With my co-host Julia Kelly, uh, who does w World War Two fiction, so maybe you can get her on here one day. <laughs> Good stuff. Yes, and I'll I'll put links in the show notes for listeners to follow up on that. Yeah, um, so, so they've Peter, done, we we've done one season, and there's a second season coming this this autumn. Okay, great. A Savage Moon is out on the fourth of October. Fifth of October. Fifth of October. <laughs> <laughs> Take three. <laughs> a Savage Moon is out on the fifth of October, listeners. So please do check that out, and the whole series, in fact. Um, Theo, thanks so much for joining. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you, Ollie. It's been great fun. 
Thanks so much for listening. Links to Theo's books are in the show notes. Coming up, I've got a bonus on the history of Israel and Palestine in the 20th century, kings and queens of England, and much more. Please do share, rate and review, but until then, thank you and good night.